Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, The Divided Loyalties of Resident Aliens, Strange Lands, Your Home, and Your Home, a Strange Land, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April 30th, 2006. A few weeks ago, I bought a plane ticket to Liberia to attend an HIV workshop with a group called Global Strategies for HIV Prevention. From a human perspective, Liberia is a failed state that the economist identified as the single worst place in the world to live in the year 2003. Life expectancy at birth is 39 years. Literacy hovers at 50%, although for women, the figure is 40% and unemployment is a staggering 80%. Since 1980, civil wars under the despotic regimes of Samuel Doe and Charles Taylor slaughtered over 200,000 citizens and displaced another 1 million people, and that's out of a population of only 3 million. In January 2006, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was inaugurated as the first freely elected woman head of state in the history of Africa, bringing at least a glimmer of hope to a dispossessed people. That's the human perspective. But according to the scriptures for this week, Liberia is as important to God, is as loved by God, and as central to his purposes as any place on earth, despite what the economist says. We don't actually believe that, of course, but that's the Christian perspective, as opposed to the merely human perspective. And if you believe that God's favor bends towards the oppressed, the marginal, and the exploited, then, paradoxically, Liberia is high on God's list, even though it's low on ours. The last will be first, said Jesus, and the first will be last. Matthew 20, verse 16. And that's a good reason to travel to Monrovia. After his resurrection, Jesus told his followers to spread his message, quote, to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, end quote. In his parallel passage, Mark renders the meaning even more emphatic by writing all creation, Mark 16, verse 15. Similarly, in Luke's sequel to his gospel, Jesus told his timid followers in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Finally, in the lectionary for this week, Peter concludes his sermon by proclaiming that in Jesus all peoples on earth will be blessed by God. That's a global promise first made to Abraham 4,000 years ago in Genesis 12, verse 3. A few decades later, John wrote from the Greek island of Patmos, where he had been banished to political exile. He offered his own version on the globalization theme. He dreamed that such a global gathering would be fulfilled beyond history. He envisioned heaven populated with people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Revelation 7, verse 9. Today, though, John's vision of a globalized heaven beyond history 
has already been fulfilled on earth today in history, starting with a few uneducated, bedraggled, and timid disciples. Today, about a third of the world identifies itself as Christian, nearly twice as many as those who follow Islam or Hinduism, with roughly one billion adherents each. Christians, for example, from 200 countries have accessed our webzine, journeywithjesus.net, to take but one tiny data point. Two radical corollaries follow from this robustly Christian global vision. Number one, the decentralization of your geography, and number two, the reorientation of your politics. First, Christians are geographic, cultural, and national egalitarians. For them, there is no geographic center of the world, but only a constellation of points equidistant from the heart of God. Proclaiming that God lavishly loves all the world, each person, and every place, the gospel does not privilege any country as exceptional. For example, much has been written lately about American exceptionalism in our current global hegemony. In terms of economic, political, military, scientific, and cultural dominance, America is unrivaled, and in that sense, America is exceptional, although there's no reason to think this will last forever. But from a theological or Christian point of view, America is no more exceptional in God's eyes than any other country. So, while allowing for a natural and wholesome love, even a pride for your own country, we know the saying, there's no place like home, ultimately, geopolitical egalitarianism subverts the claim of absolute allegiance to any one nation. Your ultimate citizenship said the Apostle Paul, is a spiritual one. Philippians 3, verse 20. Second, because of this, Christian Global Vision asks that you care as much about any and every country and its people as you do your own. Christians, for example, grieve the deaths of 35,000 Iraqis as much as 2,300 Americans or they lament the human tragedy of the Iranian and Pakistani earthquakes as much as that of Hurricane Katrina. This implies that your politics become reoriented, non-aligned, and unpredictable by normal canons. In his new book, What Jesus Meant, Gary Wills argues that there's no such thing as a Christian politics and that efforts by both Democrats and Republicans to co-opt Jesus for their side badly distort the Jesus of the Gospels. The Jesus of the Gospels, according to Wills, proposes no political program, but something far more strenuous, something Wills calls, quote, scary, dark, and demanding, end quote. In sum, no state or political party can indulge in the self-sacrifice that Jesus demands when he asks his followers to lovingly serve the least and the last, no matter where they live. About a generation after John wrote, 
an early work called Letter to Diognetus from the year 130 captured this ambivalent relationship between the believer's geopolitical identity and Christian confession. The quote's a little bit long, but worth listening to. Quote, For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country, nor language, nor the customs which they observe. For they, they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But, instead, inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according as the lot of each of them has determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, Christians display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their countries, but simply as sojourners or resident aliens. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their home country, in every land of their birth as a land of strangers." End quote. In other words, like all people, Christians reflect whatever time and place they live. We support and enjoy our various countries, but as if we were resident aliens. We experience an ambivalent and divided loyalty. Ultimate loyalty only to the city of God in its politics of self-sacrificial love, and merely penultimate loyalty to the city of man into what Diognetus called its, quote, merely human doctrines, end quote. So we honor every foreign land as if it were our own and experience our own countries as if they were foreign lands. By some miracle of grace, I thus hope to find myself at home in Liberia and ill at ease here in America, not because either is better or worse than the other, but because both of them are equally loved by God. And now for further reflection. How do you understand the relationship between Christian and geopolitical identities? Number two, what distinguishes a legitimate love of country from misplaced nationalist zeal? Third, reflect on Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, that our citizenship is in heaven. Fourth, what do you think the long quotation from the letter to Diognetus means? And finally, for further reflection, see the new book by Gary Wills, What Jesus Meant, from the year 2006, which is also reviewed on our website. For books this week, I review America at the Crossroads, Democracy, Power, and the Neoconservative Legacy, 
by Francis Fukuyama, New Haven, Yale University Press, 2006, 226 pages. In 1992, Francis Fukuyama, professor of political economy at Johns Hopkins University, published his controversial book called The End of History, in which he argued that humanity had made no significant political progress since the French Revolution, and that the collapse of communism in 1989 signaled what he called the end of history. By end, Fukuyama meant that Western liberal democracy had triumphed over all political options. Ten years later, he revised his thesis in a book called Our Post-Human Future, Consequences of the Biotechnology Revolution, not because he thought his first book was wrong, but because he failed to consider the role of science as perhaps the chief engine that drives human history. Science drives any number of interests, technological, economic, ethical, social, and so on. But Fukuyama realized that it also increasingly drives our political life. That brings us to his current book, America at the Crossroads. A speech at the annual dinner for the conservative American Enterprise Institute in February 2004 by the syndicated columnist and leading neoconservative Charles Krauthammer caused Fukuyama to change course once again, this time rather drastically. Krauthammer's speech came a year after America's invasion of Iraq and described the war as a virtually unqualified success. Whereas everyone else applauded, Fukuyama was flabbergasted. Although for a long time he had regarded himself as a leading neoconservative, he concluded that he could no longer support neoconservatism as a political symbol and a body of thought. His newest book, then, is an attempt to elucidate the neoconservative legacy, explain where, in his view, the Bush administration has gone wrong, and outline an alternative way for the United States to relate to the rest of the world. In his longest chapter, Fukuyama considers the neoconservative legacy, starting in the 1940s with its two godfathers, Irving Kristol and Norman Pordhoritz. He argues that neoconservatism's detractors vastly overestimate the uniformity of views that has existed within the group of self-identified neoconservatives since the 1980s. But he also admits that most people understand neoconservatism as it was later shaped by Robert Kagan and William Kristol. Despite the disclaimer about any party line, Fukuyama identifies four basic principles of neoconservatism. Number one, the belief that the internal character of regimes matters and that foreign policy must therefore promote liberal democracies because they are friendly and supposedly not dangerous. Number two, the belief in the use of military power for moral purposes. Number three, a distrust of ambitious social engineering projects which of course is a huge irony given American intervention in Iraq. And number four, skepticism about the legitimacy and effectiveness of international institutions. At least in his first term, says Fukuyama, 
George Bush was not an ideological neoconservative. His horrible errors involved lack of prudence in the implementation of policies rather than mistakes of underlying principles. For example, overstating the threat of Iraq, underestimating global anti-Americanism, and wildly over-optimistic about the reconstruction of Iraq. By now, by now, though, Bush's name is forever linked with preventive war, regime change, unilateralism, American exceptionalism, and benevolent hegemony, all of which Fukuyama now either rejects or greatly qualifies. Nor does the rest of the world think we have been morally good, wise, or trustworthy in the use of our might as the world's only superpower. They resent and distrust us, and restoring our credibility will require concerted efforts over a long period of time. It seems very doubtful at this juncture, writes Fukuyama, that history will judge the Iraq war kindly. The war has emboldened jihadists, fostered anti-American resentment among both friends and enemies, created a weak Iraq that will remain heavily dependent upon the United States economically and militarily, spent hundreds of billions of dollars, sacrificed tens of thousands of lives, and distracted us from broader issues, all at a huge political cost. Fukuyama proposes what he calls a, quote, realistic Wilson, Wilsonianism, end quote, that pushes back from discredited neoconservatism and is characterized by drastic demilitarization, greater multilateralism, renewed efforts to create international institutions that are effective and legitimate. He believes the United States, United Nations, is discredited, and also sustained commitment to development. How these generalities will effectively combat terrorism remains unclear. Clearly, in Fukuyama's latest view, global history is far from over. To find out where he thinks it's going, tune in to his new journal entitled The American Interest, meant to supersede his neoconservative past. Francis Fukuyama, America at the Crossroads. For film this week, I review Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Weir Rabbit, from the year 2005. If you've ever spent a frustrated Friday evening wondering what film to watch with your entire family, rent Wallace and Gromit. Clever wordplay, whimsy, remarkable animation, oddball humor, and side-splitting laughter make for wholesome fun. Roger Ebert even described Wallace, an eccentric, cheese-loving inventor, and his silent companion, canine Gromit, who cares for him, as, quote, the two most delightful characters in the history of animation. Yes, says Ebert, better than Bugs Bunny, Nemo, and Goofy, and in a category of their own. In this film, the duo tracks down villainous bunnies who pilfer vegetables at Lady Toddington's 517th annual giant vegetable feat. This is the first full feature film for Wallace and Gromit, 
after three short films by the British animator Nick Park. If you like quirky English humor, you'll love this film. Wallace and Gromit, The Curse of the Weir Rabbit. And finally, for poetry this week, we have a poem by Denise Levertov, who lived from 1923 to 1997, entitled On the Mystery of the Incarnation. It's when we face for a moment the worst our kind can do, and shudder to know the taint in our own selves that awe cracks the mind's shell and enters the heart. Not to a flower, not to a dolphin, to no innocent form, but to this creature vainly sure it and no other is godlike. God, out of compassion for our ugly failure to evolve, entrusts as guest, as brother, the word. On the Mystery of the Incarnation by Denise Levertov. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin with journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 30th, 2006. And please join us every week for an essay based upon the biblical lectionary, a book review, a film review, and poetry. Thank you.